Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. When a BBC correspondent asked theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking what world-changing discovery he would like to see carried out, he answered, fusion power to give an unlimited supply of clean energy. In his new book, The Star Builders, Nuclear Fusion and the Race to Power the Planet, plasma physicist Arthur Terrell reveals that we're closer than you might think to building enough star power here on Earth to create that clean, carbon-free energy. This book is published by Scribner, and it brings Professor Arthur Terrell to our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Isn't fusion the energy reaction that makes stars shine? How does it work? That's exactly right. It's um, it's perhaps the most prevalent energy source in the universe, actually, if you think that, you know, most of the universe that we can see is stars. And it is the reaction that literally makes stars shine. And essentially, all that's going on in these fusion reactions is that smaller atoms are coming together with a lot of energy and they're combining to get turned into much bigger atoms. And in the process of, of doing this kind of um, Lego building with atoms, uh, a lot of energy is released. So it's kind of the cousin of nuclear fission, which breaks apart large atoms. This combines small atoms to uh, make bigger atoms and lots and lots of energy. And how was it discovered that it occurs in stars? Well, um, <laughs> it's quite a funny story, actually, because, um, you know, for physicists um, on, on Earth, what was powering the sun was, was a real head scratcher um, mm. for quite a long time. Uh, and people just didn't know. But what they did know was uh, that the kind of most, uh, the, the highest energy source that they could think of, the most uh, kind of richest source of energy they could think of at the time was coal. So this was back before uh, 1900 was coal. And, and they knew that it couldn't be coal because the sun would have burned up all of its energy quite quickly. And actually, um, it was a, a very, very uh, talented physicist who um, called Arthur Eddington, who before there was any kind of uh, theory or experiments to um, kind of tell him uh, exactly what was uh, behind stars, he kind of said, you know what, it seems likely that there's some kind of subatomic process here. This was in 1920. Um, and he, he was so prophetic. He said, um, you know, there's some vast reservoir of energy that we don't understand, and it can be scarcely other than subatomic energy, which we know probably exists in all matter. And he says, you know, we sometimes dream that man will one day learn to release it and use it for mm -hmm. a service. And the story is well nigh inexhaustible, if only it could be tapped. And it wasn't until a bit later in the 1930s that scientists started to understand the reactions and discover them on Earth that are powering all stars. Now, this past December, scientists at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory's National Ignition Facility in Livermore, California, made history. What was their discovery and what does it mean for clean energy? So for those of your listeners who, who don't know, um, over in California, there's this huge experiment called the National Ignition Facility, and it's based at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And essentially what it is, is it's trying to reproduce that process that's happening in stars to release energy on Earth. And it's a truly extraordinary machine. So it's, it's the world's most energetic laser. And essentially what they do is they take 192 
beams which make up this this huge laser system and they fire them into a tiny tiny target full of fusion fuel and the target by the way is, is seriously small it's about the size of the pupil in your eye that's where all of this energy gets focused and essentially um, they recreate those incredible uh, temperatures we're, we're talking about um, uh, hundreds of millions of degrees and we're talking about mm. pressures 300 billion times those normally experienced on earth and by recreating those temperatures and, and densities they're able to trigger these fusion reactions and the really exciting thing is and by the way this is something that fusion scientists have been trying to do since the 1950s the first time they were able to sh they were able to show that they released more energy from the fusion reactions than they put in with these uh, with the laser beams and it was um, it was 1.54 times energy out than they put in, and that's really important because it tells us that fusion on Earth can be a source of energy, and it can be powered by hydrogen. Doesn't emit carbon dioxide. Its radioactive waste is minimal and short-lived. Uh, I was wondering if it could be used to make nuclear weapons. Yeah, I, I, look, I think that's um, people are often nervous of anything with nuclear in the title. Mm. Um, and I think it's partly because it's unknown and partly because people have those connotations of, of course, nuclear weapons, um, but also the kind of uh, radioactive leaks that have happened uh, over the years. Now, it's important to say that the both kind of two types of nuclear weapon, um, one of which uses fission alone, and one of which is a combination of fission and fusion. And the really nice thing about um, fusion energy so both of those weapon types rely on nuclear fission at some point in the process. Now, the really nice thing about nuclear fusion as an energy source is um, it doesn't involve any fission at all. There's no need to go anywhere near anything that, that can break apart, any of these big atoms that can break apart. Um, so actually, most experts think it's probably safer in terms of nuclear pr proliferation than mm. nuclear fission is. Uh, and you couldn't use a domestic fusion energy program to kind of hide um, building uh, uh, kind of nuclear weapons in, in the same way that you could maybe with a, a domestic kind of big, big fission program. Uh, so people generally think it's probably actually safer um, in terms of uh, nuclear uh, weapons. Uh, and, and you, you know the machines themselves just couldn't be converted into that use. You couldn't go and convert a nuclear fusion plant into a bomb or anything. Um, fusion's hard to do. That's why it's taken us so long. Well, you describe these scientists as star builders uh, who want to achieve a gain of thirty times the energy out uh, of the energy that's put in, or a hundred times to make fusion as a usable energy source that can power the grid. Yeah, so, of course, like with any energy technology, there are landmarks along the way. And, um, you know, one of my favourite facts is that the first solar cell was in, um, was in the 19th century, right? Mm. And only now, today, um, quite a long time afterwards, are we, I think it was the 1880s, are we now seeing um, solar power become uh, widely available? So uh, there are different landmarks in new energy technologies, and the one that nuclear fusion has been striving towards for the last 50-plus uh, years is just proving that you can get more energy out than in on an Earth-based laboratory experiment. So we've hit this incredible milestone now. But 
that milestone is just getting a little bit more energy out than you put in. If you want to do fusion at commercial scales, um, where it's going to be you know, economically viable, you need much more energy out than you put in. So instead of 1.54 times, as in this experiment, you probably want at least 30. And you mm. might actually prefer to get something more like 100 times energy out for energy in. Now, that might sound like a tall order, but if you look at the history of this particular experiment, every time they've made an improvement, the energy they release is increased by a factor of six or, or five. Um, and it's gone up by, um, I think, over about uh, over 2,000 times uh, in the last 10 years. So so this is a, a kind of a technology that kind of scales quite quite nicely, which makes me think that actually, um, you know, it is possible to, to get to those levels of gain that we need for commercial viability. But, you know, it takes investment, it takes time. Don't scientists in the U.S. use a method called inertial confinement fusion? Isn't that something that you've actually witnessed? <laughs> well, um, it happens very, very quickly, so it's quite hard to, to witness. But yes, I've been there present for a shot on this uh, national ignition facility. Um, the, the real kind of interesting stuff is all over in a few tens of nanoseconds so that's a billionth of a second so it's over in a few tenths of those and yeah um this way of doing fusion is called inertial confinement fusion um it's a kind of a complicated sounding name um but it's a I, you know my best analogy for it is you bring everything together for this one perfect moment when the conditions are just right and then you have the fusion reactions go and then the whole thing kind of falls apart so it's a bit like a petrol engine you know the fuel is squirted in you get the right conditions you get this little um pop uh, as the energy comes out and then you do the whole thing all over again but there are other ways of doing fusion as well gravity is one of them and then a lot of researchers have some very promising experiments using magnetic fields too you say that many of these star builders the people you call star builders seem to want to solve problems to help people and do good and you write they're creating fusion devices because taming nuclear fusion might just save the planet uh, that's because uh, they would be the alternative to fossil fuels, which are destroying our planet. Yeah, that's, planet. that's right. I mean, I, you know, what I'd say in general is energy makes life good, right? It's mm -hmm. enabled much of what is great about modern life, you know, from travel to hospitals, um, from food to, you know, powering this conversation we're having over the Internet right now. Um, but as you say, you know, we well, we started the Industrial Revolution with two billion years worth of accumulated energy reserves in the form of fossil fuels. And for a ton of reasons, uh, we can't rely on that anymore. You know, they're running out for one thing, but worse, they have all of these really bad side effects. So we've got to clean up our kind of energy game, but we still think energy is a, is a great thing to have. At, and maybe, well, almost certainly we're going to need more energy in the future, not not less. So we well, need renewables. The other alternatives are are are, uh, are things like wind power and uh, absolutely. Uh, but yeah. but this so and, I, I, but I this is we'll would this be less expensive, or more effective, more uh, efficient? Yeah. So I think um, you know, firstly, it's a new technology, so we'll we'll have to w wait and see. Um, I, th I think. Look, we're going to need renewables and fission because they generate energy today and they work today. So they're tried and tested technologies. We need to get off carbon as quickly as possible. I think um, 
you know, how fast we go in Fusion depends on how much investment we put in and, and how much effort. But I think it has some real complementarities to renewables that make it really attractive, and it has some advantages relative to nuclear fission. So one of the you know reasons why it's a complement to renewables is it can provide baseload energy at huge, huge scale. And another is that it, it doesn't take up very much land, or it won't take up very much land. Um, you know, one of the land is a great natural resource, right? And um, one of the problems with renewables is they do tend to take up lots and lots of land area. So, um, you know, fusion has those advantages. And we also know compared to fission, it would produce far less radioactive waste that would be far less dangerous and become safe after about 100 years. And also it has no risk of meltdown either. So it's going to be probably much safer uh, than fission too. So for all of those reasons, you know, star builders, the people working in this field say, actually, even if we only get fusion in 100 years time, it's still going to be really, really useful as we need more clean energy over time as a species. Well, we won't be around to enjoy that. The, the first star builder you discuss is Dr. Mark Herman, the director of the National Ignition Facility, the NIF, in Livermore, California. Isn't the primary function of the NIF to maintain the U.S.'s arsenal of nuclear weapons? So how did they get involved in star building? <laughs> Um, it's you're completely right. You know, um, one of the big tasks of, of Lawrence Livermore is maintaining the U.S.'s nuclear deterrent and, and kind of managing the stockpile of nuclear weapons. Um, so, you know, the first thing I'd say is that they really know what they're talking about when it comes to this stuff. Um, they, they are, you know, the experts on nuclear reactions um, because they need to be. Uh, so, so you know, who better to kind of help with this mission? But, you know, from the, the founding of the laboratory, um, that was one of the aims. You know, nuclear fusion was uh, for energy was in there right from the start. And it happens to be that, you know, some of the knowledge of the physics, you know, the, 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 uh, the technology and the kind of uh, apparatus are very different. But some of the knowledge of the physics uh, carries over between these two different spheres. And you know what? Um, fusion for energy has always seemed like a bit of a long shot to, to policymakers historically. Uh, and, and you can kind of understand why they said, you know, well, um, we're going to give you this money mainly for stockpile stewardship. But you know what? If if you can do some uh, fusion for energy on the side, then that'd be great. And uh, it's, a, it's kind of a, you know, it's something that's paid off because we can see now we've got this great uh, experimental result. So it's really exciting. And everyone I spoke to at Livermore, you know, the first thing they said was, look, we're mainly about stockpile stewardship, but we really care about fusion for energy as well. And I think that will be their legacy, having reached this landmark. I'm speaking with Arthur Terrell about his book, The Star Builders, Nuclear Fusion and the Race to Power of the Planet, published by Scribner. Uh, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM. It's streaming live at WBAI.org. Deuterium and tritium, isotopes of hydrogen, are the elements typically used in fusion reactions. What makes them use, uh, useful for fusion reactions and what differentiates one from the other? Yeah, that's a great question. So these are special types of hydrogen. That's the way I can put it. Chemically, they're very, very similar to normal hydrogen. Um, and they're called deuterium and tritium. And the names give you a bit of a clue as to how they're different from normal hydrogen. So deuterium is, is twice as heavy, more or less, as normal hydrogen. And tritium is three times as heavy as normal hydrogen. And um, 
essentially why they're so good for fusion is because they're a bit bigger than normal hydrogen. And because they're a bit bigger, they're, they're slightly less stable um, than normal hydrogen. And that means that if you bring them together, a deuterium and a tritium, and you, and you kind of get them hot enough and you crash them into each other more uh, powerfully enough, what you, what you can get is that they'll actually coalesce and form together. Now, we could do fusion with other types of light atoms as well. The problem is you need a lot more energy, a lot more pressure, a lot more force to bring other um, light atoms together to do the fusion reaction. So these two types of hydrogen, deuterium and tritium, are really, really good fuelstuffs uh, for these fusion reactions because they make it just a bit easier to get the, re the reaction going. What are the big questions that scientists are still trying to resolve about controlled fusion? Yeah. Uh, look, you know, this is a huge landmark, but there are definitely challenges ahead to make fusion a commercial uh, power source. Um, so one of them is just repeatability. So this experiment on the National Ignition Facility was great, and it's really changed how we think about fusion. It's, it's a great leap forward. Um, but, you know, it was just one shot on the machine, right? Um, and, and, it's, it's, and it's achievable in a lab, but you say it requires massive amounts of energy in extreme conditions, high pressure and heat. Yeah. So we, we know how to create that high pressure and, and heat once. Um, so that's great. We, we, we can master those conditions, um, but we don't just need to do it once. We probably need to do it something like 10 times a second. Um, in this form of, of doing fusion. So, you know, scaling up to 10 times a second is a big challenge. There's another challenge, which is once you've created that energy, how do you get it out of the reaction chamber and ultimately do something quite boring, um, which is use it to turn water into steam to drive a turbine. So the kind of mm. end bit of this looks very much like normal power sources. And then there's another part of this as well, which is at the moment, the lasers that they're using to charge up from, from you know, the, when you're plugging in your lasers, that's not very efficient. Now, it's never meant to be efficient. This was always an experimental facility. But for commercial viability, the whole process needs to be much more energy efficient as well. And, you know, building those lasers, uh, which do exist now today, that are much, much more energy efficient. Someone needs to, to try that. So there's lots of hurdles on the way. There's, there's also sourcing the fuel as well, uh, which, you know, is kind of available across the world, but needs some processing. Um, all of those challenges have to now come together to get to the next phase of exploring kind of commercial viability but you know uh, people have thought about these they haven't had the funding to kind of tackle them um, but people definitely know what the challenges are and, and how they would start to challenge uh, tackle them do we have any ideas about how we can effectively transfer power generated by fusion to the power grid to make electricity well, the, the last stage is, is quite easy because once you've got steam, you can drive a turbine mm. and that's just how most um, power stations work. It's how kind of fossil fuel power stations work, work as well. It's just heat energy into water to create steam to drive a, a turbine. Um, it's uh, called inertial confinement fusion or is that something else? No, so this, this bit I'm talking about now is just uh, common to a lot of types mm. of generating energy, actually. You know, you, you heat up water and turn it into steam. The question is, how do you get the heat out of the reaction chamber? And, yeah, there are different things that people have talked about. Um, one way um, that, uh, you know, something that's being considered um, is having a, a kind of liquid wall of um, a, a type of metal called lithium. 
um, around the reaction chamber. And essentially, uh, this has some nice properties, this liquid wall. And basically, um, the energy as it's coming out of these mini kind of uh, nuclear reaction pops um, will get absorbed by the liquid metal. And then the liquid metal will go into a heat exchanger, dump its heat into water, and that water will turn into steam. And then you get the normal process. It's something that hasn't been tried out at scale and in practice. So it's, again, one of those challenges that people need to work out the details. People know in principle how it might work, but, you know, until you try it out on a on a plant scale uh, experiment, it's hard to know if it'll work properly. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Arthur Terrell. Uh, if you sign up to become an, a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The Star Builders, Nuclear Fusion and the Race to Power the Planet. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopez at large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Arthur Terrell, his book, The Star Builders, Nuclear Fusion, and the Race to Power the Planet is from Scribner. Professor Terrell has won the Rutherford Prize for the Public Understanding of Plasma Physics. He works as a deputy director at the Office of National Statistics at in the United Kingdom, and his work has been featured in many publications. Um, and the UK is important in all of this, isn't it? Because, uh, uh, for example, uh, isn't a leading facility doing this work the Cullum Centre for Fusion Energy in the UK? That's right, yeah. So, um, actually, until this NIF breakthrough, the experiment just outside of Oxford, at a place called Cullum, um, there's an experiment called JET, J-E-T, and that actually held the world record for the most energy out for fusion energy, um, energy out for energy in, um, so gain. It held that record for a really long time, since the 1990s. Um, so, you know, th this is uh, the alternative approach to nuclear fusion. This uses, uses magnetic fields to trap this hot stuff. You know, mm. this is the stuff that's in stars. Um, right. So when you look up at the roiling mass of, of the sun, it's trying to trap that stuff. And they do it in kind of something that's shaped a bit like a donut. So they have this donut ring and then the uh, magnetic fields create the ring. And then the, the really hot stuff, I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of degrees, gets trapped in this uh, ring. Um, what's exciting about that? So machine, wait, wait, are we, we seeing competing theories here? Magnetic in the UK, inertial in the United States? Well, I wouldn't say it's it's quite that clear cut, but I would say that um, because actually the the biggest machine of this kind is an international is is made by an international consortium. It's still under construction in the south of France, uh, but the U.S. is involved 
in that too. Um, all kinds of countries around the world are involved in that. I would actually, and also, of course, National Ignition Facility. You know, I did my PhD on that machine. I'm based in the UK. Many of my colleagues at Imperial College London, when I was working there, were working on that machine as well. So I don't think it really falls down uh, national uh, borders so much. It's just that there are these two kind of approaches uh, to doing fusion, and um, they both hold promise. And, you know, it's too early days to, to know which one is going to be more commercially viable. Um, but there are some really big records set by this jet machine outside of Oxford as well. So, you know, it managed to um, generate the same amount of power as four wind turbines um, for uh, about five seconds. Um, so that's, you know, uh, quite impressive amounts, you know, starting to get towards the kind of scale we'd need for a, for a small uh, prototype reactor. Well, scientists have to choose. Uh, Mark Herman, who we mentioned earlier, had to choose whether to pursue magnetic or inertial fusion work. He wrote an award-winning thesis at Princeton on magnetic confusion, confinement fusion, but his focus now is to direct NIF, which focuses on inertial confinement fusion. Uh, did he see one as preferable over the other? Uh. Um, I don't know. We'd have to ask him. Um, I would say that anyone who who would say which of these technologies is going to be the ultimately more commercializable, uh, more economical one, you know, it's just very hard to say at this stage. And so that's why it's important to have a couple of different irons in the fire. Um, and, you know, it's really exciting. And not only these are two, um, you know, different uh, one is the european consortium one is, is is mostly driven by the us that we're talking about so the jet experiment and the nif experiment but you know there's a whole suite of um different fusion experiments out there mm. lots of weird and wonderful ways of doing it in the private sector and the public sector and um, we just don't know yet which one's going to give us the, the best results but jet and nif are the two most successful ones of all time so far well doesn't the real measure of value for fusion power uh relate to the amount of energy required to initiate the reaction and the energy required to convert the fusion energy into electricity, what's called the wall plug energy ratio? So that ultimately is going to be what really matters, right? Because what you, what you want to know is that your energy source is actually producing energy. Um, not just on the, you know, not just the energy that goes into the the tiny bit at the end of the, the experiment, but actually the energy that the whole system draws. Um, you know, keeping the lights on in the facility, uh, charging up the laser banks, everything. But the thing is, we don't know that yet because mm. um, we've never built a plant that's optimized to to try and bring that wall plug efficiency uh, as high as possible. Because, you know, no fusion person could get that funded, right? Uh, fusion scientists, star builders went to, to governments and to the private and to private sector investors and said, you know, we'd like to try out building a full fusion plant. And of course, those funders said, well, first of all, you need to show that the principle works, mm. get the experimental bit right, and then we'll talk about scaling up. So they got the experimental bit right now. We know that that can work. And now we're in this really exciting period where people are going to be looking to scale up all of these different ways of doing fusion in different ways so that we can start to attack that wall plug efficiency thing that's going to be critical if fusion is ever going to put energy on the grid. Well, the, the Fusion Industry Association issued a report that private investment in fusion reached 
$4.7 billion in 2022 with investors like Bill Gates, Peter Thiel, Jeff Bezos, Paul Allen, Lockheed Martin, and Goldman Sachs all putting money into fusion startups and projects. Yeah, so um, that between those public and private efforts, there are over 100 experimental fusion reactors built or under construction. Smaller um, ones, look, less, smaller than the ones at NIF and Cullum. Yeah, um, so there's, there's one that's uh, actually bigger than, uh, a lot bigger than the one at Cullum, uh, which hmm. is under construction, which I mentioned as the International Consortium. That's called ITER. Uh, I-T-E-R. That's very exciting. So, um, yeah, th there's so much activity in this space. And, you know, the, the real change in fusion in the last kind of five or six years has been the explosion of private sector interest. Um, there were very there were maybe one or two fusion firms back in, say, 2010. Um, now, I think there are about 25. And some of them have, have raised, you know, uh, over a billion dollars um, just um by themselves so so the extraordinary things going on and you know um you say oh you know the, the biggest metric is energy out for energy in and it is um but what we also know is that understanding the physics is really important because if you can understand the physics you can say well we know even though this machine doesn't produce the right amount of energy at this scale if we were to build it 20 percent bigger we know it would be even more favorable and that would get us over the line and that's what's happening in the south of france the machine they're building there is is gargantuan and they know from, from physics that we've learned from these existing machines that it's big enough to get more energy out than in. So people are very excited about that. But China's doing things. Uh, yeah. uh, Japan is doing things. Korea's doing things. There is innovation in this space all around the world. And then there's Tokamak Energy. What are they doing? Yeah, so Tokamak Energy are using uh, a similar um, technology to... Um, to the um, jet reactor that's outside of Cullum. Um, but they've said uh, something really interesting, which is, um, well, you know what? Th this really, really uh, scales well. Um, this, you know, when I mentioned about understanding the physics, one thing that you can tell with this magnetic approach is if you increase the magnetic field, you get a much, much better fusion quality of fusion reactor, and it's much easier to get more energy out than in. So um, one of the problems with doing that, though, is the um, magnets that create the magnetic fields need temperatures well below um, zero degrees. Um, they are superconducting, so that they're, they're really really cold and yet the fusion fuel this this special type of hydrogen needs temperature in the temperatures above 150 million degrees 10 so times is, hotter than the core of the sun is that even possible that's completely possible it can be much hotter than the core of the sun and it and it is and um you know so you've got this crazy crazy temperature gradient which is very hard to overcome uh, but Tokamak Energy had this idea, and, and others are trying it as well, um, which is to basically try and shrink the whole thing down um, uh, by bringing the plasma, this hot stuff, this uh, special type of hydrogen at hundreds of millions of degrees, in closer to where the magnetic fields are generated. And by doing that, um, they can get much better fusion. So it's it's a variant of the magnetic technology, and it's an example of why you know it's so exciting at the moment. We don't know which way is going to work. Maybe they'll find a better route to commercialization. I'm speaking. Technique. I'm speaking with Arthur Turrell, T U R R E L L. 
His book, The Star Builders, Nuclear Fusion and the Race to Power the Planet, is published by Scribner. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Your book was originally released in 2021. How much has happened in the field since then? Oh, my God, so much. Um, (laughs) I mean, I don't know if my publishers are listening, but, you know, maybe we should be speaking about a second edition um so the the big breakthroughs well there are, um, there's an edition in england and another one in america are they are, are they the same they're the same i was i had to change the words car park to parking lot um, <laughs> and and a few other uh, americanisms that, that and got the covers change and um, things for an imperial units instead of metric, I think. But uh-huh. um, other than that, uh, you know, the, the, the key messages uh, are, are, of course, all the same. And of course, this is, you know, an endeavor for all, all humankind. And um, lots of things have changed. I mean, um, the, the two big ones are um, this landmark result where um, at JET they managed to control um, hot fuel at over 100 million degrees for five seconds, which may not sound very long. But, you know, in, in the world of nuclear reactions, five seconds is a very long time indeed. Hmm. Um, and it brings them a step closer to controlling it, you know, almost continuously for you know days at a time. So that's exciting. Then we had this huge result at NIF, you know, blowing this milestone out of the water that has stood, for, you know, since the 1950s that people have been reaching towards and show us that, you know, fusion on Earth is possible in, in, in an experiment. Um, but there have been other things as well. So uh, China has a, a tokamak, one of these magnetic confinement fusion devices. They managed to get to 120 million degrees for 100 seconds. Then they hit 1,000 seconds. Now, this wasn't running with real fusion fuel, unlike the experiment in Oxfordshire, but um, it was still a, a very impressive result. Uh, nonetheless, we've seen developments in superconductors. So, yeah, the pace of change and innovation here is really fast partly because of new funding streams, especially from the private sector, partly because I think, you know, Fusion's time has come to a certain extent. Looking ahead in, in the decades to come, um, we really need a clean source of energy at huge scale. And we need it, you know, 10 years ago, really. Um, mm. But people are trying to catch up with that. Do you have a sense of which of the uh, competing approaches might wind up coming out on top? <laughs> well, I, I always said that, um, you know, inertial confinement fusion with lasers, the experiment I worked on, mm. perhaps I'm, I'm biased. Um, I always said that that would probably get ignition first. So this first principle um, in an experiment, more energy out than in. In terms of what reaches wall plug efficiency first or or what becomes more commercializable, there are a few reasons why, you know, perhaps magnetic confinement fusion using this kind of donut of really hot stuff and, and magnets to control it. There are some so the, the, the tokamak. that might be better. The tokamak. So that's yeah. the that's the kind of technical name for it. Um, there are some. Yeah, they're they're huge donut shaped machines. Exactly that. Um, there's some reasons to think that you know that they might ultimately uh, make something that that could be more kind of smaller and more modular and cheaper. Um, but right now we just don't know. Well, the goal of your book was to make very complex concepts like fission, fusion, and plasma accessible to everyone. Wasn't that difficult at times? Of course it is. You know, especially if you've worked on something at a technical level um, for many years, um, you know, you you forget what's jargon and you forget, Hmm. you know, that 
lots of people don't spend their days sitting around thinking about physics. And of course, there's um, a bit of a barrier to get through. And, you know, there's a couple of things. Uh, well, first of all, it's really important that scientists and um, communicators and, and those um, funded uh, to do this work um, do communicate to the public because, you know, we all have a stake in this. And, um, you know, so people deserve to hear about it. They need to know what tax money is paying for in terms of scientific innovation. Um, but also, um, this is just amazing stuff that's going on. You know, it's genuinely fascinating. And I think the story of fusion and the incredible lengths that scientists have gone to to try and recreate this most prevalent energy source in the universe are astounding you know, the developments along the way to control matter at hundreds of millions of degrees hotter than the core of the sun and pressures 300 billion times those found on Earth and, you know, recreating what's going on um, in every corner of the universe, not just in space, but also in time, because fusion was a big thing at, at the Big Bang, too. I just aren't think it's, there, it's amazing. Aren't there four nuclear technologies, controlled fission, uncontrolled fission, controlled fusion, and uncontrolled fusion? Yeah, uh, that's which right. What is so, getting most uh, of the focus these days? <laughs> well, um, so actually all three of this kind of nuclear quartet of, mm. uh, as you say, controlled and uncontrolled and fission and fusion, all, all four, um, three of them, um, were demonstrated by the 1950s. So, um, you know, we, we had um, controlled fission first when people showed that fission could um, create energy. Then we had uncontrolled fission in um, the uh, uh, atomic bomb. Then we had uncontrolled fission and fusion together in the hydrogen bomb. And this final part of this quartet, um, controlled fusion, has stood since then. And that's why it's so exciting to see this recent result. Uh, hard one, um, but which opens up the possibility of us actually turning this into a, a real energy source. What's next for the scientists at Lawrence Livermore? That's a good question, isn't it? Uh, I mean, uh, hopefully they're, they've, they're over their hangovers now. Uh, I <laughs> hope they took a, a long moment to celebrate. I mean, uh, the technology they've had to just invent along the way to make this happen is extraordinary and, and could fill books by itself. And um, they've been a bit quiet, actually, about exactly what the next steps are. I think that um, back in 2010, when uh, this machine was first being turned on, there were plans for a next reactor, something that would take the technologies uh, a step further, a step further towards what might be needed for a commercial plant. So I suspect what they're thinking about is, um, in, in the kind of slightly longer run, is what a, you know, something that looks a bit closer to an energy generating plant looks like for inertial fusion energy. And I imagine in the short run, what they're thinking about is, can we get that, get that gain up from 1.5 times the energy put in to something more like six times or even 10 times the energy that was put in. Um, so they'll be thinking a lot about the physics of high energy gain now, too. A high net energy gain. That's it. Uh, well, uh, uh, Dr. Herman predicted about when a high energy gain called ignition would be possible at NIF. Uh, has that come about in, uh, in recent times? 
Do you know what, Leonard? You, you might have to remind me exactly what timescale he set out, but I, I think mm. maybe it was as long as 10 years. Uh-huh. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know what? I, I think I, I'd give him that one. Um, I, I mean, I think it was a pretty safe bet at the time, though. I will say that. Because we've seen that energy gain on uh, the experiment where, of course, he is a very senior leader. And, um, you know, as I said in the book, when, when NIF was making these improvements, they were of factors of, you know, five or six. So they were just rocketing up um, the energy yield. And I think when, when the book came out, maybe they'd gotten to 3%. Um, then uh, in 2021, they got to, um, just after the book came out, they got to 70%. And, and now they've got to, um, you know, 154% effectively. So, um, yeah, it was a safe bet and it, it paid off. And uh, he was right, you know, and um, mm. I, I guess I was right as, as well. Mm. Um, how long it's going to take to get to that next phase of kind of getting more energy out than in from the facility as a whole. That's a much more difficult one to tell. And it's not about time. It's never about time. It's about investment and effort and how much we as a society choose to, you know, back it and try and make it happen. We have a a little about two minutes left. Is there anything you want to add to this? Yeah. So I I think, you know, if if you're um, perhaps you've never read a book about physics before, um, which is understandable, I'll be honest. Um, I, I really think that, you know, even if you um, don't care about kind of energy at all, um, just the sheer ingenuity of the star builders in getting to this point mm. is, is just worth it. Uh, it's worth finding out more about this story from me or from anyone else, to be honest, because, um, you know, l- literally uh, people at Livermore have invented and patented technologies just to get them. Uh, a bit further and um you know the, the care the attention to detail the creativity it really is cre- people think scientists aren't creative but you know if you see how the scientists of NIF have done this uh, you'll be astonished at the creativity that's gone into getting us to this point so uh, you know i think it's just worth it finding out about this story to just be amazed at, at what human ingenuity can do and, and there's also a desire to do good in this case of course, yeah, and I think every well, that time, isn't always the case, but uh, here no. they they are involved in uh, something that might help save the planet. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'd say this: uh, every star builder I met really cared about putting the Earth on a sustainable energy path, not just in the next decade or the next couple of decades, but for thousands of years to come. And fusion energy will last humanity for thousands, if not millions of years to come. There's that much fuel out there. Each reaction, uh, each kilogram of fusion fuel releases 10 million times the amount of energy of a kilogram of coal burning. So it's an extraordinary uh, reaction and and just full of energy. And if I may just leave you um, with one more reason why we should do fusion. So um, fusion is a great, great energy source for us on Earth, and that's why scientists are so excited about doing it. But it, as I mentioned, it releases a lot of energy per unit of fuel as well. And this is really important if you want to step outside of Earth's backyard and start to explore space. So we're not going to start exploring the universe on a coal-fired um, spaceship. And actually, you can do the maths and, and look at the physics. And, um, you know, fusion energy is the only 
power source um, that can power uh, further exploration of space. So I like to say, you know, that star power is literally the only energy source that can also take us to the stars as well. And we should do it for that reason, if for no other. Thank you so much for being on our show. I've been speaking with Arthur Terrell. His book, The Star Builders, Nuclear Fission, Fusion and the Race to Power the Planet, is published by Scribner. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that brings us to the end of our show. A great thanks to Kate Guan Allison for all of the work she did in preparing today's show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is Leonard Lopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2 WBAI. Dot org or 212-209-2950 because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else and as i mentioned earlier anyone who makes a contribution of 50 dollars or more in the name of leonard lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we were discussing the star builders nuclear fusion and the race to power the planet by arthur terrell so why not make us make that call right now 212-209-2950 go online to give to wbai.org you might also consider becoming a sustaining member what we call a bai buddy and we'll say thank you if you do that with a wbai tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a bai buddy for ten dollars a month or more 10 15 20 25 however much it really helps us to plan for the future but either way i hope you'll call right now because bai uh doesn't take ads or foundation grants it allows us to be freely completely free speech radio but it also means that we have to rely on you and your tax-deductible support. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us again on Wednesday when our guest will be Ronald Gruger, Gruner discussing his new book, We the Presidents. We'll see you then.